We broke out of John chapter 5. <clears throat> we're into a new realm. John chapter 6. And we're moving through the gospel, and we're going to read now John chapter 6, and I'll read the first 14 verses. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him, because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went onto a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. G uh, Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. The word of the Lord. I was reading an article that said, New York City is a place where people come who want power or who have power. And the dictionary will tell you that power is the ability to act. Now, you know, no one moves to New York to reflect. And actually, as far as I can see, I've yet to meet anybody who even moves to New York to live. You come to do. And therefore, we're all full of people who either have or want power. And yet, we're talking here in this passage and in the Bible in general about a power that makes the combined power of New York City, all of it together, look like a pop gun, look like a soggy, wet paper airplane. What is it? It's the power of God. And the gospel, the gospel is just like a... a a diamond with so many facets. The gospel is this. It can be put so many ways. The gospel is this, that the might of God through Christ is connected with our helplessness so that we become both the objects of and the channels for the power of God. His incomparably megatonic power. That's uh, what the message of this passage is. There's a little boy here, a poor little boy, who is chosen as the channel of God's power. This little boy, <clears throat> we know, is poor because he has barley loaves. In those days, barley was the bread of the poor. In fact, it's been that way for many centuries. Uh, there's a place where Samuel Johnson sniffs, and he says, barley is a grain which, in England, is fed to horses, and in Scotland is fed to people. 
You know, it, it, this is, uh, that was the message of what barley was. I mean, you, it, it's lost to today. We don't think of it that way. Barley was the bread of the poor. Who is this little kid? He's a little kid. He's a child. He's from a poor family. Uh, what he's got, his belongings are virtually nothing. In every way from a human perspective, he is insignificant. And, and you know, many of you already know consciously that's how you feel. And a lot of you don't yet know consciously, you can't even admit that that's how you feel, in this city surrounded by power, insignificant. And yet in the hands of Jesus Christ, this insignificant becomes significant. In the hands of Jesus Christ, the insufficient becomes sufficient. That's the message, and that's it. You can go home now, or could I elaborate? (laughs) That's the message. The message is that this insufficient becomes sufficient. In the hands of Jesus Christ, the little loaves suddenly become superabundant plenty. The little loaves become a feast, and an entire city is being fed. Jesus Christ says, my power can come through you. There's a place where he says, if you have faith, you can say to that mountain, move from here to there. Nothing is impossible for you. How can Jesus talk like that? What he's saying is this. He says, it's impossible through me to have a power available to you that would enable you to deal with obstacles so far beyond your native ability as this, to move this mountain is beyond the strength of your right arm. And Jesus' purpose here is to teach Philip and his disciples about this. He's a master teacher. Verse 6, we're told, he already knew what he was going to do. He could have snapped his fingers. Instead, he goes, makes all of his disciples nervous and upset. He gets them scrambling around trying to find something. He, he ends up getting a little boy and he removes the lunch from this little boy's mouth. Why does Jesus do that when he could have done this? Because he's a teacher. And he's trying to get us involved and to understand. And if you listen to his teaching, as he teaches the disciples, you'll never be the same. What Jesus teaches us here is, first of all, the sufficiency of his power, and then secondly, he teaches us how we can, have, we can become the channels of that sufficient power, that all-sufficient power. <laughs> he teaches us two things, the sufficiency of his power and how to be channels for that all-sufficient power. Now, first of all, he's teaching us the sufficiency of his power. This is the only, outside of the resurrection, this is the only miracle recorded by all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why? Well, there's a number of reasons why, probably. One of them has to be an interesting thing. You know, you notice, when it tells you how many people were in the crowd, it says 5,000 men sat down. It was only taking a census of the men. There were others there. There were families there. There were women and children there. It counted 5,000 men, which means the crowd itself could have been at least three times bigger. That means that this miracle was seen by that size of a crowd. One of the reasons it's mentioned is because it's one of the external witnesses. The scholars would say it's an external witness to the validity of the history. Whenever you're trying to study some ancient historical document, you look for both internal evidence and external evidence. Should we take this seriously? We all know now, scholars will tell you, that the Gospels were documents that were being circulated around the Mediterranean and around Palestine within 40 years from the time that this happened. You know darn well that if a miracle was done in front of, if a miracle was not done in front of 15,000 people in this town, and 30 or 40 years later, 
a document is circulated around Palestine saying there was a miracle done in Bethsaida seen by 15,000 people. You realize that if it hadn't happened, there's no way that this document could have ever gotten off the ground. There's no way that, this, that the Christian religion could have ever gotten off the ground. There's never really been a good case against the miracles of Christ. They happen. The real question is, why did they happen? Who is he? The fact is, though, that this is one of those miracles that had to have happened. Or there's no way that the faith could have gotten off the ground. There's no way that the scriptures, the, uh, the gospels, could have ever been circulated and, and gotten any kind of credibility. It was maybe the most public of his, uh, of his miracles. Paul tells us that 500 people at once saw the resurrected Christ after his death. That's a very well-attested miracle. But in this case, you've got 15,000 at least. One of the reasons why it's mentioned four times. But the real reason is because this was Jesus' way of announcing to the world who he was. In the Old Testament, God fed the children of Israel in the desert. He gave them bread in the wilderness. Because when they were wandering in the wilderness, in the desert, in that dead place, the place where nothing could grow, it was a sign of God's power that he was able to create and sustain life in a dead place. That's what the wilderness is. That's what the desert is. And because of that sign of power, the prophets continually said that the Messiah will be the one who, when he comes, will feed us from bread from heaven. Second Baruch, which is uh, not a, a book that we have. It's one of the uh, Jewish writings. It's one of the intertestament writings. Second Baruch is a perfect example of that. In there, there's this prophecy. It says, when Messiah comes, if I can find it right here, in those days, the Messiah will appear and feed them with bread from on high. So here comes Jesus Christ. He brings the people into the wilderness and he feeds them with bread. What is he saying? He's serving notice. He says, do you see who I am? I'm the one from on high. I'm the one who came from where the manna came from. God's power is always in the Bible measured in terms of life-giving. When the Bible talks about the great power of God, it talks about the fact that he's a creator, life out of nothing. And not only that, in the New Testament, Paul often talks about uh, the uh, power of God in terms of resurrection. He says in Ephesians 1, he prays that the Ephesians would know the incomparably great power of God, which God used when he resurrected Jesus from the dead. Death is the number one enemy and the number one power arrayed against us. And the message of Christ is, I have put death to death. And therefore, Jesus' power is divine in nature. It's from above. It's a sign of the Messiah. Jesus' power is life-giving power, death-breaking power. He brings life out of nothing. He feeds them in the desert. And therefore, Jesus is serving notice. I'm the one from above. And that's one of the reasons why they're all, uh, these, this miracle is, uh, is recorded. Oh, one more thing. This miracle, however, is carefully designed to show that Jesus Christ, like a river bursts its banks sometimes and floods, so Jesus Christ bursts the banks of your expectations for the Messiah. He shows us the superabounding dimensions of his power. In the Old Testament, there were never any leftovers for manna. God says, just gather one day's ration. And if you even tried to gather more than one day's ration of bread from heaven, it would spoil. There were no leftovers of manna. You only got enough. 
And yet Jesus goes out of his way to show us that the bread from heaven he brings is superabounding. Everybody stuffs themselves. It says they get all they want, and yet there's baskets and baskets and baskets left over. What is he saying? Jesus Christ does not just give you your, your daily ration. We talked about this in John chapter 2. Let's say it again. Jesus is serving notice here. I am Lord of the feast. What do you think Christianity is? What do you think it is? What do you think it is? You think it's sort of this. Well, I'm not going to have much fun. I'm going to have to really be careful. I'm going to have to kind of, you know, I can't do that. Can't do that. Got to, got to watch out. I got to sort of stay in line. But that's the price you pay if you want to go to heaven. Is that Christianity? Jesus Christ says, I serve notice here. His first miracle was to create the best wine anyone had ever tasted. This miracle is to say, I'm going to stuff you, and there's going to be lots left over. I'm Lord of the feast. What kind of God is this? A God of superabounding life. What kind of God would create a world and put in it 2,000 species of beetles? What, who would have thought of that? Only someone who loves life for itself. An artist. Some of you like that one, don't you? <laughs> Only a God who revels in vitality, who revels in beauty. 2,000. Why not 100? Why that much? What kind of God? A God who is full of superabounding life. When, uh, when Paul talks about God's power, he does say in Ephesians 1, he says, I just pray that you would know, he says, the incomparably great power of God. See, he has to start heaping up adjectives. Incomparably great. What's really neat about it is if it, in the Greek, it's hooperbalo, okay, megatos dunamos. And you can almost hear it, can't you, in English? Because we have actually English versions of all those words. Hooperbalo, megatos dunamos. The hyperbolistic megatonic dynamite of God. That's what Paul says. He's heaping it on top. It's, it's incomparably great. You see, think about this. A nuclear uh, warhead is a thousandth of the power of a hurricane, and yet the Bible says the Lord sits enthroned over the hurricane, Psalm 29. And a hurricane is just a, a billionth of the power of just an eruption on the surface of the sun, which is just a small star, and the Bible says God scatters stars like sand. And then, of course, it's just a small sun. It's nothing compared to the power of a supernova a millionth of the power of a supernova. And the supernova is just one of the infinite number of points of power in the universe. And you see, so what is the power of God? Is it a million universes? No, Paul says he's beyond beyond. He's greater than great. Even as we've sat here and tried to imagine this, don't you see that we haven't even come to the outskirts of his power? And Jesus Christ says, it doesn't matter how insufficient you are. The gospel is this. Put whatever you've got into my hands and my power will come through you like a freight train. Super abundantly, more than you can imagine, destroying the power of death at work in your life. The power of God. The power of Jesus. Who is this, they're always saying, that the wind and the seas obey him. Now that's the sufficiency. I mean, Jesus is getting it across with this miracle in every possible way. But the question comes up, all right, how then can we be channels of his power? It's very clear that Jesus wants us not just to know that he's powerful. He gets no joy out of that. Some of us do. Some of us just absolutely love to let just, you know, let, 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 me, let me, every so often we drop hints of our power. 
we drop names. We just show what we're capable of purchasing. We, we, we show people just what we're capable of doing. Just a little bit, just enough to let them know who we are. Eat your heart out. <laughs> Jesus never does that, ever. Why is it, it we're told in verse 6 very clearly, he knew what he was going to do. But he asked Philip a question. Hey, come on, Jesus, what, what, what is he doing? He is trying to get us involved. Paul says, he, in Ephesians 1, in that place I've mentioned, Paul prays and says, oh, that you would know his power, and that's Jesus. Jesus doesn't want you to know about his power only. He wants you to know his power. Some of you have come here with a small ambition. All you want is just a little inspiration just to give you a, that extra boost just to meet the weak. Oh, my friends. Jesus wants to give you so much more than that. He says, I want you to know my power. I want you to thrill under it. I want you to feel it surging. Have any of you ever tried to sing and suddenly found yourself in front of somebody with an incredible voice? And have you ever noticed that they sing through you? Have you ever noticed they sing through your voice? Because you're singing, but you never sounded so good. Jesus Christ says, I don't want you to just know about me. See, in other words, Jesus Christ is not like a diva. He's not like someone who's up there for you to say, wow, what a voice. Jesus Christ is saying, will you let me come stand behind you? And will you let me sing through you? And will you open your own voice? I want you to know my power. I want you to thrill under it. I want it to surge through you. And that's why he tries to get the people involved. He doesn't want to just say, hey, Philip, Andrew, little kid, watch this. He doesn't do that. He says, Philip, what are we going to do? And Philip says, I don't know. Andrew, what are we going to do? I don't know. That's all I got. Five biscuits, barley biscuits, and two sardines. What, what, what are they? See, he's got them in desperate. And Jesus says, well, I do want to use what you have gotten. I'm going to work through you. I'm going to come and stand behind you and sing through you. What a God. What a Messiah. Don't you see he burst the boundaries of anything you could have imagined, just like, a, just like a river? So what are the principles, okay? How can we become channels? And there's two principles, though the second one I have to break into a couple other parts. Two principles. Number one, first of all, you cannot be a channel of his power until you see your own powerlessness. You knew I was going to say that, didn't you? But it's very clear. The whole idea of getting Philip to say, I don't know, we don't have that kind of money. See, they knew they had a problem. This is at least 15,000 people, and they're thrill-seekers. These are not Sunday-go-to-meeting people. What do you think they are? All the women wearing little hats with veils or something? Dear friends, these people came because they knew he was a miracle worker. This is more like a rock concert. They were coming for thrills, and they were out in the middle of the desert, and it was getting late, and it's it 100 degrees, and they realized it's very unruly. It's like having a rock concert and then thinking, gosh, we ought to have some food. We ought to have some restrooms out here. They realized that there was a problem. And Jesus says, let's think about the problem until you get into despair. He leads them into despair. He leads them to see that their resources are incomparably small to what's going on. Jesus will always do that because until you know your powerlessness, you can't be a channel of his power. That's a rule. What? Now, friends, if that sounds cruel, just recognize that it works on so many other, uh, so many other levels. For example... Everybody who's ever been in a 12-step 
program knows what the first step is. What's the first step? You are powerless over your problem. And thousands and millions of people have been helped by that one first step. I'm so glad it's there. It's a hard step, and you can't go on to the other ones. First step. Why? Because until you see your powerlessness, you can't tap into any other power, period. Now, everybody does not need a 12-step group, and that's for addictions and other things like that, but the Bible says that the most fundamental level, it does work for everybody. If you believe you are competent to run your own life, you haven't gotten past the first step. You, will, you have not yet seen your powerlessness, and you cannot be a channel of his power. Some of you have gotten off to a good start in life, especially if you're young. If you had the right education, the right connections, the right kind of talent, things look great. Huh? At the beginning, you're off and running and you say, hey, I think I have what it takes. I have the power to master my own life, but you're only thinking professionally. And as time goes on, it may have already happened to some of you, even those of you who have made it professionally. A lot of you have even sensed your powerlessness there. But those of you who, who feel like you've made it professionally, as time goes on, you will find that your relationships begin to overwhelm you. You see, your marriage can't be managed on your own power. Your children can't be managed on their own power, on your own power. You can't manage them. Or the loneliness you feel because you don't have family and children can't be managed on your own power. And eventually, as time goes on, you will growingly feel powerless over your emotional life, even if you're professionally wonderful, and there's not that many who are. But let's go deeper. Eventually, at times in which the busyness in your life begins to diminish, you'll start to realize that you've also not just got, you're not just powerless over your emotional life, but over your spiritual life. Every so often, and the more as you get older, you start to eventually stop and say, what am I doing everything for? What am I living for? What is the purpose of it all? How do I even know right from wrong? And you know what you do in most cases? You go back and get busy so you don't have to think about those anymore because what you're really admitting at that point is you're saying, I have no idea what I'm doing in, the, in purpose and meaning in life. I'm spiritually powerless. If you stop living superficially, if you stop living on the surface of your life, if you start to think and develop any kind of wisdom at all, you will begin to see your powerlessness. And some of you, if you're feeling like that now, don't despair. It's Jesus asking you these hard questions. It's Jesus bringing you there because there's no other way you'll ever become a channel of his power. Jesus is like a surgeon, remember that. And you have to move on. You can't stop here if you just feel powerless. You can't. No surgeon cuts people just to make a hole in them. He doesn't say, oh, that's my job is done. There's a hole there now. Jesus doesn't do that. He cuts you so carefully, so tenderly, because he wants to get something healed. And that's why you have to move on to the second step. The first step, you've got to see your powerlessness, or there's no way you can be a channel. The second step is the scary one, and that is you have to put everything you've got in his hands. Verse 11 is the scariest part of, that whole, of the whole passage. The little boy, we say, was a channel of his power. The little boy took his stuff and, and Jesus used it to feed a city. Isn't that wonderful? But verse, he had, Jesus had to do verse 11. He took it. He took the bread. He took it. Here's this little kid out there in the middle of the desert with 15,000 famished people. At least he had lunch. And Jesus took it. <laughs> and here's the principle. The principle is this. He lost control over his lunch. 
he lost, he lost it. It was gone. The only thing he had. And because he lost it, because he gave it up, he ended up eating far more of it than he ever could have possibly had. Isn't that what's so weird? Five little barley, you've got to remember barley loaves, if you're thinking of sunbeam bread, uh, when you think of loaves, you're making a mistake. We're talking about five little barley biscuits and two sardines. And the fact is, because this little boy let go of them, because he put them in Jesus' hands, because he said they're gone, he had an incredible feast. He, he, he ate much more of his food than really existed if he hadn't given it up. And he was filled, and not only was he filled, but everybody around him was filled. He gave it up. He lost control. He put it in Jesus' hands. Think about that. Well, you say, what does that mean concretely? It sounds scary. It sounds wonderful, just like the gospel, scary and wonderful. Well, but what does that mean? I said I'd break it down, and here, let me just, let me just finish by trying to break that down. Let me just suggest that what it means to put your loaves in his hands is to do three things. First of all, it means to obey but to obey with a knowledge of his power. Now, I don't know where that little boy was, but here, here's what you got to do. When you obey, you're showing that you believe that he's a God of power. You're treating him as a God of power. There's a place in Romans where we're told that God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you guys, you and Sarah, to plan to have a child. Abraham was over 100 and Sarah was over 90. And Jesus and God comes and says, you're going to have a child. I want you to plan your life around that. And the Bible says, Abraham was persuaded that God had the power to perform what he promised, so he gave glory to God and he did not waver. See, he thought about it. He said, all right, this is going to be hard to obey God, but wait a minute, this is the God who brought all the stars into being. He has the power to perform what he has promised. And so, in other words, Abraham thought about his power and mused upon his power till a fire awoke. What fire? The fire of his own spirit. The power, of, the power awoke in him as he thought about the power out here. Now, what this means is something fairly simple, but now listen hard. This is hard. It's hard to say and it's hard to hear. A lot of you say, hey, I'd like to obey the will of God in my life, but I don't know. Should I stay in New York? Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Listen, what God is saying is, well, for a minute, will you stop thinking about the part of my will you don't know, and will you start looking at the part of the will that you do know? What about the things that you already know? Are you known for being a scrupulously honest person? Are you known for being a remarkably generous person? Are you known for being a loving, approachable person who's always putting him or, her, him or herself out for others? Are you known for being a person who stands up for justice but never does it with the slightest bit, with a shred of ill will or bitterness or rancor or harshness. Are you, are you forgiving people or are you staying bitter? Are you trusting God or are you being, are refusing to trust him and just worrying yourself into the pit of your stomach? Are you praying without ceasing? Are you doing the parts of my will that I have told you and you say, those things are too hard. And the answer is, what you mean is, you refuse to treat him as a God of power. Because when you say, if I obey that, I'll lose that, I'll, I'll be taken advantage of, my lover will drop me, 
I'll be laughed at. When you say, if I obey those things, that'll be too hard, what you mean is, I do not treat God as a God of power. I intellectually know there must be some great power running the universe, but when it comes right down to practically, I can't obey. What that means is I refuse to treat him as a God of power. Unless you're obeying what you know, you are not putting yourself in his hands. You're hedging your bets. You're refusing to shift the center of your gravity from yourself to him, aren't you? You can't talk about seeing God's power in your life. You're not going to see anybody transform through uh, your life unless you're willing to obey what you know. Secondly, to put yourself in God's hands means to realize that God's power is for you. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is a hard one. This is a very hard one. In fact, in some of your cases today, the reason you are not experiencing God's power in your life is because you won't see his powers for you. When Jesus was before Pilate, and everybody was ready to just pounce on him, how did he get so much courage? How could he stay so calm? You know why? He looked at Pilate, and what did he say? Any power that you have has come to you from my Father. It's been delegated to you. You know what Jesus said? Jesus got power because he knew the only power Pilate had was God's, and it was working for him. Jesus says, my Father's for me. There's a place where Paul was yelling and screaming at God because of something that was going wrong in his life. We don't even know what it was. It was a thorn. And the thorn meant there was something that God wanted, uh, something that Paul wanted God to take out of his life. And God wouldn't do it. And Paul was ranting and raving and saying, why don't I have the power of God in my life to heal me? And God came to him and said, my power is made perfect in weakness. And what did he mean? He says, if you are willing to humble yourself, if you're willing to see that what I'm doing is for you, if you're willing not to question me but to trust me, where do you see the power, the radiance, the character, the patience, the wisdom that will grow in your life? You know, sometimes you can say to your child, you can say, you know, at great sacrifice, your mother and I are trying to save thousands of dollars for your college education. And, the, and that's really going to help you. And the kid says, well, why can't you take me to a movie tonight? And you say, it's a school night and we don't have the money for it. Well, what's, what good is all that money in the bank for my college education if I can't go out and buy the records and the CDs I want and go to the movies? And, well, what good is that? And you look at the person, you look at your kid and say, will you trust me? My power is for you. I know what's best for you. If you trust me, my power will be made perfect in you. My son, my daughter... Isn't it possible that right now the reason that God's not, his power is not working in your life is because you are saying, yeah, I know you're supposed to be for me, but I don't see it that way. Why isn't this happening? Why isn't that happening? And because you refuse to count God's power as for you, you don't experience it. My friends, he is going to make his power perfect in you if you trust him. If not now, later. If not your way, a better way. Some of you are not experiencing God's power because you won't obey him. Some of you are not experiencing God's power because you won't see it's for you. One last thing. Some of you say, well, how do I know if God's for me? I don't know that. Here's why. The last verse, the last verse says, this must be the prophet Jesus was trying to get them to see that he was the prophet. The prophet they're referring to 
is from Deuteronomy 18. When Moses was on the mountain and the people were trying to listen to God speaking to them, and they said, we're too powerless, we're too weak, we're too sinful, we can't stay near God. Moses went up the mountain and talked to God and came down and brought the message. Moses was the mediator. Moses was the bridge between the power of God and the powerlessness of the human beings down here. And Moses said, someday a real prophet will show up, and Jesus is the one. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the one who says, if you receive me as Savior, I can be the bridge between the powerlessness you feel and the power of God. You see him as being perfect and you see yourself as being flawed. That's right, but I've paid for that on the cross. I am the one, I'm the man in the middle. I'm the mediator. I'm the bridge between his power and your powerlessness. I have paid for it. I have set it all up. Some of you don't know whether God is for you because you've never actually put all of your trust in Jesus as your mediator and said, I am nothing, be my everything. And the minute you do that, you can know God is for you. Some of you, dear friends, are Christians who haven't been obeying him, and you certainly haven't been seeing that his power is for you, and as a result, you're not experiencing his power in your life. But here's one last thing. A couple of you out there might be saying, if you knew what I had done, you would realize that Jesus couldn't accept me. Oh, yeah? Take a look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and you'll see in there prostitutes. You'll see in there adulterers and adulteresses. You'll see in there people who in, in, uh, in, indulge in incest. In fact, in Psalm 87, the Bible says, I will record Rahab, the harlot, and Babylon among those who love me. It doesn't matter what you've done. Give him your loaf. Give him your biscuit. And it will come back a feast. Let's pray. Now, Father we ask that you would help us to locate the reasons that we don't experience this tremendous power in our lives. Some of our cases, we're being disobedient and we don't treat you as if you're powerful. In some cases, we will not see that you are for us. In other cases, we have seen that some of us are just not trusting Jesus as the prophet, the, the second Moses, the mediator, the one who has bridged the gap between us, the one who's paid the price, the one who's our savior, Father, we pray that everybody here will find out what needs to be done to connect our helplessness with your power so that we can give you our loaf and have a comeback of feast. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.